Hey, today on The Barry Ferris Show, we're going to talk about inflation and you. That's next. Hey, welcome back to The Barry Ferris Show Culture Shift. Hey, thanks for being with us today. I hope your day is going great. Today, we're going to look at inflation. Can you do anything about it? And if so, what? Here's three general ideas that might be helpful to you in an inflationary market, and they all have to do with scarcity. First, invest in yourself so that your earning power continues to rise. If you're a software programmer, for example, you know, take a class in artificial intelligence or cybersecurity or management. If, if you're a cosmetologist, learn the latest techniques on advanced color methods. If you're in construction, take a class in construction management or project management. You know, even prestigious colleges offer many classes free and online. There are still 7.6 million people unemployed officially, but you know, if you go to the unofficial actual account, it's 13 and a half million. There are 10.4 million open jobs. This bodes well for anyone who wishes to work hard. This gives you an opportunity to get promoted faster than in normal times. And you don't need to go full-time to college to stand out. So do a search for a career roadmap in your field. Then look at what the requirements are to move up the ladder. Then show up on time and invest that way and invest in yourself. Map it out and invest in you primarily just with your time to put yourself in a category that makes you less common. This increases your skill scarcity and that will make you more valuable. This should set you up to have your earnings increase and I'm hoping that that'll happen at a faster rate than inflation. So that's one. Second, invest in assets that have an element of scarcity by virtue of their attributes. So in other words, don't just invest in the real estate asset class. Invest in real estate with something special that makes it limited in some way. If it's residential, uh, like a view of water or a corner window if it's in a townhome or on the top floor if it's in a condo or on a cul-de-sac if it's a single family home. The concept of investing in something distinctive is important. And when it's distinctive to the very characteristics of that asset that can't change, that typically appreciates faster than the asset class as a whole. And then finally, in an inflationary market, you can purchase non-perishable necessities as a form of investment. This is sort of a be less worse off strategy. So it's not going to give you a lot of consolation, but it will help. For example, you could use some of your bonus or overtime pay to buy an extra bottle of olive oil than you need, or an extra bottle of maple syrup, or a package of toilet paper. These are non-perishables. And then you lock in today's pricing. You might not need it for a month or two, but in an inflationary market, you come out ahead if you use tomorrow what you buy today. And if that inflationary trend continues, even if there's a dip in pricing at that time, you just buy more. So you buy two bottles of olive oil at that, of that same item, and that will enable basically what, a, what they call a simile of dollar cost averaging with everyday needs. So you could practice this until inflation's under some target, like 2.5% for a whole year. That way, hopefully, we're behind it. And I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but this practice is not going to make you rich. But it could help as a hedge. 
I'm not a financial planner, but those big picture concepts may be of some help. And I really do hope that you're able to navigate through these difficult times. Yet you keep hearing government officials say that inflation's temporary. The specific word they use is transitory. What's transitory mean to you? Assuming that it means just a few months, time's already up. I mean, about seven months ago, I conveyed why it was already too late for inflation to be just transitory. And as we discussed recently, inflation's directly linked to too much government spending. It's that simple. It creates an artificial stimulus. There's too much money chasing too few goods. And earlier this year, the Democrat Congress and the White House had just passed almost a $2 trillion stimulus package that we did not need. Even President Biden conceded that inflation's at a 30-year high right just recently, and he conceded that that was a result of his $1.9 trillion stimulus legislation. He was kind of bragging about it. He basically, basically said that the United States dollar is losing its purchasing power as a result of the Fed printing money to crank out all those stimulus checks. This was during a speech in Baltimore just a few days ago. Here is part of what he said. The irony is people have more money now because of the first major piece of legislation I passed. You all got checks for a $1,400. He kind of bumbles on, but he mistakenly believes that more spending will help. And just this week, a new $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill is now law. The Congressional Budget Office scored it and said that even after factoring in all the potential benefits of improved roads, that over 20% of the bill will directly increase the deficit. And, and that's even with a very generous definition of infrastructure, you know, counting more than roads and bridges as infrastructure. Over half of its waste and at least $256 billion just adds to the already huge deficit. Where does that money come from? The Fed printing more of it. And the left just won't relent. I mean, they now want to spend even more on a social spending spree that would hire an additional 87,000 IRS agents and rewrite American society. But hopefully that might not pass, thank God. The $1.9 trillion earlier this year and the $1.2 trillion just approved will continue to create a bidding war for goods and services and housing that'll increase pricing and shrink supply. I mean, this can get out of control. And when it does... It's really hard to stop, even if you're a superpower, even if you fix the supply chain. I mean, you can pick an empire, whether you're looking at the Roman, the Persian, or the Ottoman Empire, when a superpower has too much debt, which is always the result of too much government spending, inflation is the inevitable result. And historically, that's resulted in permanent loss of global influence. You know, we went into a bunch of detail on the U.S. great inflation of 1965 to 1982 last time. And in that 17-year period, we suffered four economic recessions, two severe energy shortages, and the unprecedented peacetime implementation of wage and price controls. But we somehow recovered. We remained a superpower. How did we pull that off? What did we do? Well, in addition to a very popular, freedom-oriented president who was elected in 1980, uh, and he kind of helped shift the debate back to a strong America, the Fed also did some important things. First, the Fed was honest with what didn't work. The Fed couldn't really control unemployment that much. The Fed saw firsthand how wage and price controls don't work. The Fed learned that inflation was really the greater enemy. And at the end of the day, the only thing that it really could influence, it's only got so many tools in its 
toolbox. When inflation got out of control, business investments slowed down, productivity faltered, and the USA was hit with the general economic malaise. And that's really serious because we're not designed to be a country that's mediocre. Our whole system requires an entrepreneurial vibrancy. We're, I mean, we're really a country that's founded on the notion of abundance, things working well, not shortages and empty shelves. So how did we stop that crazy inflation? It happened under Paul Volcker, who was promoted from his Federal Reserve Bank of New York job to the chair of the Fed. When he took over, inflation was running at 11%. That's pretty doggone high. Since things were already out of control, he was able to convince everyone to suffer even more so they could put the brakes on inflation. How did he pull this off? Well, within the Federal Reserve System, there's this thing called the Federal Open Market Committee. It's a committee that's made up of the Federal Reserve Board Governors, or they call themselves the FOMC. These guys make key decisions about interest rates and the growth of the United States money supply. So when Volcker, who was ahead of it, took over the Fed, he was also the chair of the FOMC, and the FOMC, this committee, announced its intention to target reserve growth rather than the Fed funds rate as its policy instrument. So what this means is that the Fed slowed down the supply of money. They quit printing as much. His policy slowed inflation, but it was painful. In fact, looking back, we know that it was far more painful in 1980 than it would have been had they made some modest adjustments in 1965. Raising rates a little and slowing down the money supply way back in 1965 would have put the brakes on pricing and the economy for a period. But it would have been a shorter period, and it would have forced the government to spend less if they had stayed independent. But back then, LBJ was bent on spending money. The Fed had also recently adopted this accommodative monetary supply, and that's not helpful to reining in government spending. This new monetary policy is when the Fed basically says, look, we'll be part of the policy coordination. We've got Congress, the executive, and we'll be part of that. In other words, rather than hold firm and make it hard for runaway spending, the great infl inflation actually began when LBJ ran deficits to fund the Vietnam War and the great society programs that didn't make society all that great, by the way. And the Fed departed from that ability to convert the dollar into gold. So after President Nixon made that decision, we would forever be a fiat money system. A fiat money system is when uh, it's, it's a government-issued currency. It's not backed by a commodity like gold or silver. A fiat money system gives a central bank a lot of control over the economy because they can regulate how much money is printed. So in effect, they can fund things that otherwise could not be funded. That lethal combination made the Fed this overly powerful agent to finance deficit spending without a world war as an excuse. I mean, we're talking about 12 people that almost no public citizen knows and they're making decisions that affect everyone in the Western world? I mean, with all that power and with a loss of independence as an operating strategy, the Fed facilitated rather than curbed the great inflation. They made it worse by accommodating all that spending. And that continued until Volcker introduced the painful medicine. In a couple of years, inflation finally slowed and started coming down, but it was painful. Looking back on all this, the Fed policymakers unanimously concluded that the empirical evidence of that 1965 to 1982 period reflected a flawed Fed policy. The Fed could never again have a relaxed view of inflation. Increasing the money supply with no target for inflation does not help the economy, and it doesn't reduce unemployment in the long run. So back then, what did the Fed do? 
they introduced a simile of an anchor for the dollar. It was all based on a specific numerical objective for inflation, which eventually was pegged at 2%. Now, now witness this. From 1992 to 2020, inflation has averaged 2.21%. And the highest year was 3%. Now, that's not perfect, but that's pretty darn close to the target of 2 And when the goal's credible, it does help the economy. The Fed did not keep government spending in check like you would think, yet the numerical inflation targets reintroduced an anchor to monetary policy, and that did enhance transparency. It certainly wasn't perfect. Monetary policy decisions, though, were better known by the markets, and that did help reduce uncertainty. Now, you can pick a period in this time frame, and you can easily discern how bad inflation is right now in comparison to the entire period after the great inflation last year. If you look at the decade of 2000 to 2010, inflation averaged 2.39%. If you take 2010 to 2020, it was only 1.73%. Of course, there's a pretty significant uh, downturn in there, but still, only 1.73% overall. But November 2020 to October 2021's inflation rate is at 6.22%. And that includes November 2020 to February 2021, where it's only 1.5%. So you know it's higher than 6.22%. In fact, if you look at just October and multiply that number by 12, 12 months, inflation would right now be at 10.8%. I mean, that's close to where it was when Volcker came in and put the clamps down way back in 1980. So how did the Fed come to this 2% number? Sounds arbitrary. When Greenspan was the Fed uh, chair, um, Janet Yellen was on the uh, FOMC. She was also a board member of the Federal Reserve. And this is in 1996. And so she asked for price stability to be defined. She knew that during the great inflation, the Fed lowered interest rates to loosen the money supply and target lower unemployment, but then had to raise interest rates and reduce inflationary pressure. And that trade-off was jerky. And in the long run, inflation and unemployment both increased together. So that wasn't good. So by March 1980, annual CPA inflation rate had reached all the way up to 14.6% with unemployment at 6.3%. So she's saying, how do you make things more stable now that we're in 1996, and, and, and she asked this of the chair. And so this is public. And then the, the chair uh, said, with price stability. That's Greenspan. And so she said, well, uh, chair, uh, what is price stability? And he said, the definition of price stability is the state in which expected changes in the general price level do not effectively alter business or household decisions. In other words, it's a good thing. Like it's not artificial. People can actually do what makes sense without thinking about what the Fed's doing. So Mrs. Yellen, Janet, asked, could you please put a number on that? So Chairman Greenspan laughed and said, well, I I guess the number is zero if inflation is properly measured. What's he mean by that? What he's meaning is you can't be in per, you can't perfectly measure an economy in real time. You can, you can kind of in hindsight, but not as it's happening. And you need some wiggle room to reduce rates. Anyway, it was our current Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who back then was one of the 12 at the Fed, who at the time responded with this. So since you can't really measure things properly, 2% inflation would be a good idea. Janet Yellen is the one who said that. She's the one who got the 2% concept moving toward an official target. The pain of the great inflation was still on everyone's minds, 
Absent a gold standard, the idea was that everyone would want a sound money or some kind of honest money policy. And unofficially, the inflation target rate went all the way down to 1.5% in the early 2000s. In 2012, they finally made a public statement. The target of 2% became official. It was announced in public, and even though it's arbitrary, it did provide some stability. I mean, it could be 1.79%, right? But it's 2%. So back in 1996, Yellen claims that an honest money policy would be 2% inflation, and now she's not worried about 6.22%? Back then, the notion was that the Fed should not be able to surprise the market. It should be fairly easy to predict and easy for the public to assess. If we're going to be living with a fiat money system, at least have a sound policy that everyone can point to, yet even a 2% inflation rate redistributes purchasing power. I mean, it takes money from citizens and it transfers the money to the federal government. It's a real tax. The proceeds that the Fed gets in return fund the policies of the federal government. Inflation reduces the purchasing power of business and households. That money goes to the Fed to fund government. Make no mistake about it. That's how it works. So the Fed charges a low interest rate to banks. Banks pay a low interest rate to savers. That reduces the purchasing power from the low or non-interest bearing dollar balances. And that lowers the value of the debt that the government owes to the public. So really the Fed can't even afford to raise rates much because the interest it owes would climb. And I probably couldn't make the payments. If we were wanting to do what's best for the American people right now, since we have seen this script before, we should reduce the money supply even further and telegraph to Congress that no increased spending will be accommodated. Now, we might be a bit late to slow down after all these trillions of dollars without raising rates, which would be even harsher and maybe catastrophic. You know, the POTUS has been no help. On oil, we sure should not be blocking the Keystone Pipeline. We certainly shouldn't have ended oil and gas leases on federal land. That makes no sense. That reduces supply and increases the price of oil and everything that is made from oil. You know what's made from oil? Just about everything. Everything plastic, all polymers, all silicon, your artificial Christmas tree, the lights, the stringer part. In addition to fueling your cars, there's an awful lot connected to oil. When that goes up a lot, it hurts at all levels. Unfortunately, the consequences are already upon us. The real wage growth is minus 2.22% since January. So what that means is the average guy got a 4% raise last year, but it costs 6.22% more to buy things. What causes inflation? Government spending. The Fed finances it. You are effectively being taxed on your gross earnings. So at what point does the camel's back break? Just a year ago, the Fed government was at 26 trillion in debt. It's now nearly 29 trillion in debt. In 2019, it was 7 trillion less at 22 trillion. We have way overreacted to COVID and inserted way too much money into the market. That doesn't count the massive 21 trillion unfunded obligations of Social Security and the 33 trillion unfunded obligations of Medicaid. I mean, as a percent of our GDP, our gross domestic product, our official debt is at 131% of the GDP. And that excludes the unfunded liabilities. So I looked up the Fed actions in October, just sort of curious on how they're spending their time. It included a statement on climate-related financial risk, 
a series of diversity and inclusion conferences, and how to green the financial system. Those actions don't seem to be helping reduce inflation that much. So I looked up Chairman Powell's November statement before Congress. It befuddles. Chairman Powell said that since inflation was below 2% for a number of years, it's okay to have it above 2% for a while to even things out. We are at 6.22%, probably 10.8%. He can't be serious. In fairness, the Fed recently slowed down by about $15 billion a month of bond buying, and that's a good start. Will it be enough to slow inflation? With all this new federal government spending that's already in play, our only hope is that they don't make it even worse. We've got to stop unbridled spending, or this could become a financial catastrophe. The longer they kick the can down the road, the more painful will be the remedy. The government was never supposed to be this big, never supposed to be this involved, never supposed to have this much control. The least they could do is return to an honest money policy. So, in the meantime, do what you can control. Our whole system requires an entrepreneurial vibrancy. I mean, we're a country that's founded on the notion of abundance, and you can be an outlier on the upside. You can become a scarce asset and invest in scarce assets. So my two cents, in summary again, invest in yourself. That's never a bad idea. Invest in assets with scarce attributes. That's always a pretty good idea too. And then purchase non-perishables in advance of use. That's maybe a good idea during inflation. To your success, and that depends on your freedom. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Farah Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryfarrishow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Farrah Show on YouTube. See you next time.